Good morning. My name is Matthew, one of the elders here. Today is a fancy sermon because I printed my sermon on cardstock accidentally. Ooh, fancy. The flowers that you see behind me are from a funeral yesterday afternoon. James Bridges was a member of Lentz Baptist Church and subsequently a member of the Gathering Church, and he uh, went to be with God in November of 2018. James had cerebral palsy, which made communicating difficult for him. He was a Walt Disney enthusiast, and interestingly, he was an enthusiast of the British crown, knowing all the ins and outs of the drama. I'm sure he would have something to say today about what Prince Harry and Meghan are doing with their royal responsibilities. But James did not let his difficulties in speaking stop him from communicating. I fondly remember James having a note for me almost every Sunday, a note giving me some Disney factoid or something regarding the crown, and sometimes just an encouragement to me, the pastor, thanking me for my message or letting me know that he was praying for the church or how thankful he was for the church. If you're joining us today for the first time, you're catching us towards the end of a longer sermon series through the book of Matthew. And we're in the middle of a series of parables that come to us in Matthew chapter 25. A few weeks back, we were in Matthew chapter 24, which stated the fact that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And Matthew chapter 25 is a series of parables that calls us to therefore be ready, to be prepared for the return of the king. To be prepared means we must examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Are we trusting Jesus now? Is Jesus our only hope? Is Jesus our only plea? Because there's coming a day when the answer to that question or coming to a conclusion to the answer to that question will be too late. We must turn now to him in faith and trust and repent of our sin and find the forgiveness that only he offers. Because when that day comes, the day of opportunity will be passed. And that was the point of last week's sermon. That was the point of the parable of the ten bridesmaids, that when Jesus comes, it is too late then to get prepared. You must get prepared now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of preparation. And today is very apropos to remember Jage Bridges. Because it reminds us, these flowers behind me, as you see them while I'm preaching, reminds you that life is fragile. That life is brief. That our mortality is ever before us. That death is imminent. So how do we live then in light of our own mortality? How will we live in light of the fact that our life is really just a vapor? And that's the point of today's parable, the parable of the talents. How will we live in light of the fact that our life is just a vapor? What does it mean to be a Christian? The text is going to ask, ask us today. What does a person look like who's really trusting in Jesus? What does a true Christian do? What are the thoughts? What are the dispositions? What are the attitudes of a Christian? We could ask the question in many different ways. And we could give many different answers which are legitimate to that question. But this morning, 
We need to see that Jesus is pressing this question home on his disciples. He's pressing, he's preaching a message to his own disciples, and yet he's talking to them about people who appear to be servants of the king, but do not live though as if they're servants of the king. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to Christians. This is the kind of message he would give in a Christian service. People who appear to be servants of the king, but are not. Do not live as such. And then he gives them a tremendous warning against those who profess to be followers of Jesus, but with their lives, they totally neglect to live as if they were his followers. That's the point of today's passage. So let's read it together, and we'll unpack it under three headings. Matthew chapter 25. That's embarrassing. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me the two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown. And gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should receive what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has given, who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning, and we come to your word, and we hear this warning, we hear this challenge, we hear this call to look and examine our lives, how do we live, we want to be found faithful, we want to be found faithful. Would you help us through the preaching of your word, would you quicken our spirits, would you invigorate us? Would we see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ all the clearer through the preaching of your word? Help me as I preach, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So three points this morning, you have them up on the screen, on the sides here. Point one, the master's challenge, which is verses 14 to 15. Point two is the servant's response, verses 16 to 18. And then point three will be the master's judgment, verses 19 to 30. Point one, the master's challenge. Notice that Jesus goes... 
out of his way to say that the master gave this weight of money or goods to his own servants. Look again at verse 14 with me. It says that there's a man, and he's about to go on a journey, and he calls forward his servants or his slaves. Servants is probably a better translation for what slaves oftentimes connotates. Jesus is stressing here that the people to whom the master gave the trust already belong to him. You catch that? The people that the master's talking to are already his servants. They already belong to him. They were his servants. Now, second thing to notice in verse 14. The money or the goods or the talents that the master gave them belonged to the master. He entrusted the servants with his own possessions. And that's twice now that Jesus has stressed that the servants belong to him and the possessions belong to him. The picture here. The picture here that's being shown for us is the lordship of God, the lordship of Jesus over his people. They belong to him. And the possessions that he gives to them are his. He's lord over them and he's lord over their stuff. So here already we come to the first point of application. The status the status of a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are not merely contracted workers performing duties in exchange for payment. We are not hired hands. To use a popular phrase lately, there is no quid pro quo in the kingdom of heaven. We are owned and we are possessed by Jesus Christ if we are Christians. Paul will say, you, we are not our own. We have been bought with the price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So the second thing we must note is that this is not some kind of works salvation passage. This is not some kind of works salvation passage. The workers have done nothing to receive what they have received. They've not done anything to receive what they've received from this master. This is the gracious, kind master giving them everything that they have. Let's say something about the nature of the word talents to help us understand a bit more what we're talking about. I think that we can maybe normally think of talents as having native abilities or personal attributes or capacities that a person might have. That's one way that this passage has often been translated and and, and interpreted. I don't take it to mean that. I don't take it to mean that we're talking about someone's abilities or their capacities or something like that. People might talk about someone being a talented pianist or a talented artist or something like that. We might say he has a real gift and there are talents that we can speak about and so on and so forth. But the talents are spoken of here, I don't think are natural aptitudes or native abilities, but these talents are rather just something that's been entrusted by a master to be used for his benefit. One commentator put it like this. The talents in this parable belong to someone else and they are entrusted by that someone to the servants in order to be used not only in their interests but for his. And in this passage, as we see, these, these talents, they were a sum of money. They were, they were goods. They were some kind of amount of money. Verse 15, to, to push the point home that I'm trying to say, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. The phrase according to his ability is, is used in the sense of saying something like this. Uh, each was given according to his ableness. So it's not the ability that's the gift. The, the ability, or the, I don't know how you've heard this taught before, but the ability or the ableness is not the gift. They're given in accord to the ableness. 
Okay? You see that in verse 15 pretty clearly. In other words, if I know that Dan Gutz is able to lift heavy objects, I might give him heavy objects to lift. Okay? I'm not giving him the ability to do it. I'm giving him heavy objects to lift because the ableness pre-exists the giving of the talent. Or put another way, the talent is not the ability. The talent could even be a circumstance. The talent is not the ability. The talent could be the circumstance. The talent is something above and beyond the ability. And in this case, in this parable, the talent is money. And it's a lot of money. It's a lot of, lot of money. It's nearly impossible for us to convert what this would translate to in modern currency, but commentators sure try. D.A. Carson says that one talent in context could be worth as much as $600,000. So, assuming the value for the sake of illustration, uh, the, the one servant that received the five talents received about $3 million. And then the two talents was about $1.2 million, and the one talent was about 600000 There's a lot of money that they're being entrusted with. It's supposed to, it's supposed to sound to, our, to the reader extravagant. This is a tremendous gift that's been entrusted to their ability. Let me just press one more thing in here. Verse 15 says, he gave. He gave. He gave. What a, what a wonderful gospel truth. The master comes and the master comes to give. The master comes to entrust his servants with an exorbitant amount of resources, and he gave. God gave. Maybe that's the point that you need to hear this morning. The master is pointing us to show us what the character of God is like, and God is a giving God. God gave. Do you realize the implications of this passage, though? It's very tricky. It's very subtle. You realize that if you contributed something to your salvation in any way, then there are limits on what God can demand of you. Think about it. If this is somewhat of a joint deal, and you have some interest in the game, you can dictate some of the terms. But if the gospel is really received by grace alone through faith, then there are no limits on what God can demand of you. If God really saved you through his son's finished work on the cross in your place and on your behalf, and you receive that gift by grace through faith, you just have to believe it. You just have to lay hold of it by faith. You didn't have to walk to Calvary. You didn't have to die on the cross. You didn't have to suffer under the wrath of God that you deserved. You receive it freely by grace. If that's true, there are no limits on what God can demand of you. The gospel is that right standing with God was freely given to you, which means you are not your own. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus if you're a Christian. God gave, God gave, God gave. That's the point. That's the first point. So what do they do in response? And in turn, what do we do in response? Point two. The servant's response. 
verses 16 to 18. He tells us in verses 16 through 18 what happened. He gives us an account of how each servant managed the trust. And this in of itself reminds us that Jesus is keenly interested in how we live. That's at least one point that Jesus is making in this parable. That Jesus is acutely aware, keenly interested, intently concerned with how we live. This is an interesting point in the day and age in which we live. Because people often think, why does God even care? Or we begin to have this view of God that he's the big party pooper in the sky, right? He's George Banks in the sky. That's what we begin to think. And just to say a few brief things on that point. First, if there really is a God, and if he really can be of any benefit to you, he must at points contradict you, and he must also be intently concerned with you. If there really is a God, I'm speaking now to maybe the person in the room who's not a Christian, or thinking about the conversations that you're having around the water cooler this week, why does God care? Is God just a big party pooper in the sky? Two points. If God is actually going to be of any benefit to us, then he must at points contradict us, and he must be intently concerned with us. A parent that is not intently concerned with their child is negligent. A parent that doesn't at times contradict the will of their child is negligent. But we live in an age where the idea of a God that contradicts us is a God who's a bigot. We live in an age where if the Bible says something different than we think about sexuality, or if the Bible says something different than we think about marriage, or if the Bible says something differently than we think about politics, etc., etc., then therefore the only answer, the secular mind says, we must reject the Bible and we must ultimately reject God. But don't you see what we're doing? When we do that, we are making a God in our own image. And a God made in our own image isn't a God that can actually be of any benefit to us. If God is actually going to be of some benefit to us, he must contradict us at some points. He must contradict what we think. Because if all we ever think about who God is, God always thinks what I think, then I've created a God in my own image. Second, God is, must be intimately concerned with us if he ultimately is going to care for us. A parent that doesn't care, that isn't aware, that never confronts their child is negligent and ultimately not a loving or good parent at all. The same is true with God. I mean, point three is going to be the result that we're going to get to in a moment, but just, let's just skip forward for a second and understand. Look at 21 and 23, through 23. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me the two. Here I've made two more. Two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you see the character of the master? The character of the master isn't to be the party pooper in the sky. The character of the master, the aim of the master, the goal of the master is to give us more. That's the aim of the master. The master wants to give them more. The master's not trying to ruin their day. The master's not trying to put handcuffs on their life and make their life an act of drudgery. The master wants to give them more. Jesus wants to give you more. 
He doesn't want to give you less. He doesn't want to take something from you. He wants to put the right restrictions in your life. He wants you to follow him and follow him wholeheartedly and live exclusively for him so that he can give you more and more and more. That's good news. Nothing else in this world does that. Anything else you give yourself to in this world world will just take and take and take and give you less and less and less. You live your life for your career, it's not going to pay back the way it says it will. If you live your life for status, if you live your life for looks, if you think the way I look is the way that I'm going to find approval and significance and happiness in life, it'll take, 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 take from you. Only Jesus, when you completely give yourself to him, will give you more. We are not serving a malevolent God, but a benevolent one. The heart of Jesus is to give us more and more and more. And as we return to the story, two things happen. Two things happen. Two of the servants, they gain 100% return on what's been entrusted to them. Two of the servants doubled what had been given to them, while the third servant buried it. Buried what the master had entrusted to him. We can already see that there's a hint that this is not a good thing to do. At the very end of verse 18, we're told that he dug a hole and he hid his master's money. And once again, it's emphasized that this is money or goods or a weight of measure that belongs to the master. Yet he puts his master's possessions in a hole. It's supposed to sound the way it sounds. I'm going to entrust you with this massive gift and you're going to go dig in a hole like a dog buries a bone. It's cluing us in that this is, this, is a, this is a bad idea. Three servants, two basic results. Two double it, but the master's entrusted them, and one literally just buries it. And I think this is the point of the, of the parable right here. The point of the parable is to focus on the servant who did nothing. He didn't do anything. The point of the parable is to look at the servant who's received this gift, has been entrusted with this thing from the master, and he does absolutely nothing with it. He takes it out back, he digs a hole, and he buries it. We've got to understand that, or I think we're going to totally miss the parable. Jesus is not telling a story. Again, I need to press this. Jesus is not telling a story so that you'll believe in salvation by works. Jesus, rather, is telling a story that warns against a kind of Christianity that professes with its lips, but is not reflected in one's life. The focus is on the servant who does nothing. The faithfulness and the diligence of the first two servants is just a simple expression of their love and their loyalty to the master. This this, this tension that we're feeling right here reflects a controversy of about 20 years ago. And that controversy was called the Lordship Salvation Debate. And, and, and folks on this side were so concerned that we're doing some kind of gospel plus that they said, all you got to do is just repent and believe, and you can go about living your life however you want to. And the Lordship guys were saying, well, no, salvation is, is absolutely a free gift. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And one that really receives this gift, you'll see it in the outworking of their life. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not gospel plus. 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not gospel plus. It's just reality. It's like saying I do to my wife and then never live with her, never live only for her or whatever. It just doesn't make any sense. In what sense is she my wife? I mean, I guess it just it doesn't, it doesn't compute. And this is the refrain constantly of Jesus' teachings. Jesus is saying, if you've truly been marked by saving grace, if my love, if my grace, if my mercy, if my forgiveness has radically gripped your heart, then it just results in a different life. It just looks differently. You will know a tree by its fruits. You will know a tree by its fruits. It's not gospel plus. Don't believe that lie if someone's telling you that. Jesus saying, if you love me, you will obey me is evidence of a changed heart. Because we can't even love him unless he's first radically come into our life and converted us. We can't even see the kingdom, Jesus will say to Nicodemus, right? You can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. So to be born again is first a movement of the Spirit of God. It's a gracious, sovereign act by the decree of God. God saves you. And then Jesus is going to say, if you love me, if that's really happened to you, In time and space and history, if you've really been converted, then you'll obey me. And that's what this parable is showing us. You notice, to press it into us, that we're told in the passage that as soon as the master gave them the money, what did they do? It says that they immediately took it and they invested it. It's, they, didn't, they didn't do it grudgingly. They didn't do it with, with some kind of drudgery. They were excited about the opportunity to invest the master's money. They were excited about what the master had given them. It's like that's what it is to be a Christian. When God converts you, it changes your affections. You're excited now. You're excited to live for him. You want to live for him. You want more of him because when you live for him, when you obey him, he's going to give you more of himself. He's going to give. He's going to give. He's going to give. But unfortunately, this story is setting before us to remind us that there are Christians who profess to be Christians and believers with their lips, but their lives say and indicate that this person doesn't really, isn't really been converted by Jesus. They, they view Christianity as, 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 as drudgery and, and so on and so forth. Remember, the abilities precede the talents. Remember that the talents given are not the abilities, they're more than that. And I've found that oftentimes the way this plays out is in the midst of a circumstance. The way the talents that God has given you are exercised come in a variety of circumstances. Let me say a few. And remember that every single one of us in this room right now has been entrusted by God with something. Every single one of us in this room, if we're a Christian, has been entrusted by God with something to live for his glory. Young moms, there's a lot of young moms in this room that have the circumstance, that have the talents of raising young kids and denying yourself And living for them is oftentimes so challenging, especially in a world that so often demeans what mothers do in the home. 
but it is from God. It is an opportunity. It is your stage to show that Jesus Christ is ultimately valuable to you. When you change a diaper, it seems so insignificant, but it's an opportunity to live for the glory of God in caring for another human being. Singles, you have the circumstance of relatively more time than, than, than others. Don't hear me saying you're not busy because I know you are. But you have a, a, a talent, you have a circumstance that a lot of us just don't have in the season that you're living in. And you can use it to joyfully serve Jesus and his people. You can use it in a way, you can use your time, you can use maybe a season of having extra resources in a way that's for the good of Jesus' people, it's good for the world, it's good for the church. Take missions trips. I don't know if anyone's responded yet to say that they'll go with John and Laura next year. I don't think so. Take missions trips. Use this opportunity. Use this season. Use the maybe extra time, maybe the extra financial resources you have. Invite yourself to other people's homes. I give you permission to do that. Invite yourself into other people's homes to just, just, just be around people. It might seem like, as, 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 as the marrieds, we, that we're just too busy. We are busy, but we need you in our lives. We need you around us. We, we, we need you to be in my, I need you in my kids' lives. My kids need people in their lives that are not just their mom and dads, their aunts and uncles. They need other Christians in their lives. To the weak and the dying, show us that Jesus is supremely valuable. To the weak and dying, show us that Jesus is supremely valuable. Show us that when everything else starts stripping away, that Jesus is enough. When everything else starts to fade away, when, when, when you don't have the speaking ability, you don't have the financial ability, you don't have the, the, the hospitality abilities that you once did, show us that he's still your treasure. To the elders, we have the circumstance to lead humbly, graciously, kindly, laying down our lives for the sake of the church, to show the church that Jesus is supremely valuable to us, to show the church that Jesus has revealed himself in his word to us, and to lead humbly, graciously, lovingly, yet firmly. That's point two. Point three, the master's judgment. Verses 19 through 30. So you're not your own. And you are responsible. You are uniquely entrusted with something. And finally, you're accountable. You're accountable. And we see that in verse 19. After a long time, the master returns to settle accounts, which means that there's going to be a day of reckoning. There's going to be a day when each of us will stand before our creator, will stand before our maker, but stand before our own master, and will be asked to give an account. The fact that we're sitting here with these flowers behind us is a reminder that one day each of us will stand before the master. Each of us will stand before the master. And there's the reward. First, we see the reward of the servant who'd been given five talents, then the reward of the servant who had given two talents, and then the condemnation of the servant who had the one talent. 
And in verses 19 and 21, you see the pattern. The first servant who'd been given the five comes forward. He's clearly been anticipating his master's return. And when the master calls, says, what did you do? He happily and enthusiastically comes forward and says, I took your five and I gained five more. Again, I'm going to say it for the third time in every point in this sermon. This is not a story about earning your salvation. All right? To both of these faithful servants, he gives a blessing, and it's a beautiful blessing, as we said earlier. It's about the lavish, this story at the end of 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of a lot of stuff. Enter into the joy of your master. This is about the lavish generosity of the master. This is a master who just longs to give more. This is a benevolent, kind master who longs to give more. He longs to give rewards to the first two. It's his joy. It's his delight. He wants to do it. He doesn't do it grudgingly. He doesn't do it because he, he's, not, he's, not, he's not the guy that you know, is forced to pour, pull a few quarters out of his pocket. He just gives. But the condemnation of the third servant is entirely different from the first two. Verses 24 to 30. And I just want to look at it for a moment, and then we'll come to a close. Look at what the third servant does. He gives an excuse, and he makes an accusation. He gives an excuse, and he makes an accusation. He excuses his unfaithfulness by saying two things. First, he says he was afraid of his master, and second, he disclaims any responsibility for the talent. Look at it. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, and I was afraid. And then he says, to take back what is yours. Did you catch that? Verse 24. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering, seed, and gathering where you scattered no seed. Where do you get that in this parable? Where in the world does this third servant come up with that kind of story? He levels an accusation. He says, you're a hard man. You're a hard, hard man. And he accuses him of some kind of impropriety. And you, and you gather seed where you sow where you didn't scatter any seed. He calls him a thief. You're a hard man and you're a thief. Where in the world in the story do we get that conclusion? It's not there. The story is not describing the master as a hard man. The story is not describing the master as one who's a thief. The story is describing the master as a generous, kind, lavish kind of man. The character assassination that, he, that this third servant gives in verse 24 is not found in the passage, which means one thing. He didn't really know the master. He didn't really know the master. How many of us grew up, I hear it all the time, going to some kind of church, maybe going to some kind, I often hear it, I'm not, I'm not dogging the Catholic church necessarily, but often people, I grew up going to Catholic church on, on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, and there's a view of God that he's a hard man. He's a hard master and he seeks to steal. He wants to thief. He wants to take my joy. He wants to rob me of things. That's not the master. That view of God isn't God. 
That view of God is someone that didn't know God. All we've seen in the story is the kindness and lavish grace of the master. That's why, friends, that's why we must see God and come to God through Jesus Christ. If we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. We know what the Father is like. We know the character of God by looking at Jesus. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus, the one who lays down his life for his friends. Jesus, the one who longs to give, 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 and give to the very end. That's Jesus. That's the master. That's the one who lavishes his love and grace on us. He is not a hard man. He is not a hard man. And he is not a man who steals anything. He's a man who gives to the very end for our sake. But interestingly, we know the same sun that melts the wax oftentimes hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax, the love and the grace of God oftentimes hardens the clay. To some, it's the aroma of life. To some, it's the stank of death. But we must come to God through Jesus Christ. My, my favorite hymn of late, Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing heart. Oh, could I catch one smile with thee and drop into eternity. He's a smiling, kind master. And second thing that the third servant does, of course, is he just says no. Basically, he, he thumbs his nose at God. He says no. Here's your money. You deal with it. I don't want the free grace you're offering me. I don't want it. I'll go get it out of the backyard. I'll pull it up. I'll give it back to you. You take it. You deal with it. And that's the point. You know, the Apostle Paul, we'll close with this. The Apostle Paul loved the phrase, the grace given. He says it a lot in his writings. He says it in Romans 12, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, he says it in 1 Corinthians 13, according to the grace of God that was given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I, but it was the grace of God that was with me. He uses that phrase in talking about us, Romans 12, having spiritual gifts that, accorder, that, that differ according to the grace that's been given to us. Let us use it in proportion to our faith. It says in Ephesians 4, but grace was given to each one of us according to Christ's measure. That's what we have as servants. We have grace upon grace upon grace that's been given to us. And we have a master. We have a master who gave himself until the very end. When Jesus Christ gave his life for our sake, he gave and he gave and he gave and he continues to give. And his call to us is to woo us into loving obedience, to follow him wherever he may call us so that he can just give us more of himself. Would you pray?